Welcome to the Bayesian Conspiracy. I'm Inyash Brodsky. I'm Steven Zuber. I'm Jess Dickey. And today we have a guest with us. Calling in is David Spearman. Is that how you'd like to be known? Yep, that's fine. I am... I'm David. I've been bothering these guys by email for a while, and they finally decided to just let me say my piece on the show. I am definitely going to be sending them a three-page email after this airs with other stuff I didn't get a chance to say, but... Hopefully, I'll get to say what I want to now. <laughs> Excellent. Don't let this be a, an encouraging uh, parable for anyone else who wants to try the same gimmick. This only works <laughs> once per podcast. Right. <laughs> Alrighty. So, we have David Spearman on today to talk about UBI, uh, Universal, ba- Universal Basic Income, uh, which was last mentioned on the Yang Ring episode. And when this is, I think, near when this conversation started? You, had you contacted us before? Uh, I think so yeah i think it was on the feedback episode yeah uh, but the the first time was just like jess i think mentioned offhand something about ubi and you didn't really talk about it but uh the the yangarang was when like it's the most substantive time i can think of that you talked about it on the show okay that's right i remember that that thing that you sent us was a link to i think one of the ones that you sent us for the prep for this episode that has been sitting in our like wait to get around this section for all too long so here we are all right and why are we talking to you as opposed to i don't know someone else so you're talking to me because i am a graduate student which means i have enough uh expertise if i may say so myself to have interesting things to say but I don't actually have, like, real grown-up commitments yet, so <laughs> I'm also willing to do things like come on to podcasts. Although, uh, I guess you had Robin Hansen on, and... We did, uh, but I, th- anyway. I think we managed to leverage Robin's kind of, like, grandfather of the rationalist movement thing, emotions, to get him to come on, so we, we snuck that one in. Yeah, I feel like he's got commitments. Yeah. Well, I don't. Uh, I'm also uh, a UBI skeptic, so it's not just a matter of you guys bringing on a fourth person who's totally on board to talk about how great it is. Hopefully we'll actually be able to have an interesting discussion and learn from each other and stuff. Good. I think we've had a lot of that in the past. Yeah. Anytime we all agree on something, it's sort of like not, not the most interesting thing. Yeah, it's more fruitful. So, yeah. and pl- plus, it's nice to have a, a consulting expert. So, yeah. And you were the one who wrote in about the abortion episode uh, that caused us to have the little um, abortion non episode with the email response, and that was really good because finally we had someone with a little bit of pushback to to you know contrast against our opinions. So we're hoping you'll do the same thing here. Uh, I generally don't like talking about abortion. Um, so if anyone brings that up on like the subreddit or anything i'm probably just gonna ignore it uh no offense i just the it's a uniquely bad uh policy debate epistemically speaking um so yeah i'm not really interested in talking about that much beyond what i've already said yeah all that's in the past anyway we're moving on we've already talked about it too much on to bigger and better things exactly uh, so UBI, uh, quickly, I 
if anyone is just coming to this podcast out of nowhere, is universal basic income. It's basically the idea that everybody should get a certain amount of money from the government every month with absolutely no qualification or restrictions, no preconditions. You need to qualify. You just get the money for being a citizen. I think just to caveat that that definition that the most the most persuasive version of that that I've heard has some minor caveats, which is if you're already receiving government aid, you don't mm. get the UBI. Right. Um, or or it's reduced by the amount of aid you're getting or something. Sure. Yeah. Or like, I mean, say if you're getting 850 bucks in social security every year, every month, and that's all you're getting and UBI is a thousand, then you drop the social security and you take the UBI. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know if there's one model that UBI necessarily represents. I mean, there's UBI could replace all of the federal programs. There's, um, you said paid monthly. Uh, there's, different payment schedules hmm. it's still kind of uh in the works have we said anything drastically wrong uh not as far as i can tell um like you said there are a lot of specific proposals floating around i think some of them are worse than others but most of them have uh cheaper and more effective alternatives around so uh if you want to get into the details of specific proposals, I'm happy to do so, but probably our time would be better spent just sticking with the basic, everyone gets a cert, uh, check for a certain amount, and most of the arguments I have to say about that would generalize to more nuanced proposals. So Okay. Uh, the first question I have about UBI is, um, when I look at it, it seems basically to be a less frills and less restrictive form of negative income tax is am i wrong here is this just another term for a negative income tax so that's so the thing is in homework land and this is actually one of the one of the main reasons why i oppose ubi in homework land they're the same uh so if you just look at the income post taxes and transfers for any given level of uh, earned income, then they're the same. But the thing is, when the government moves money, uh, it does it in a leaky bucket. So you, however much you take from the rich people, you will have to give less than that to poor people if you're transferring from rich to poor. Um, so while they come out the same, if you assume away the administrative costs, uh, tax evasion, all that, uh, they do come out the same. But in the real world where we have to actually make this policy work, uh, UBI comes out looking a lot worse. And that's my big reservation about it. Basically, anything a UBI does, a negative income tax does better. So what is a negative income tax? A negative income tax is if you... Um make underneath a certain amount of money, the government gives you money. Uh, the simplest form is just your tax rate is your income times a certain percent, which is the tax rate, minus a lump sum. So if, say, to take a simple example, if the tax rate is 10% and the lump sum is $1,000, then if you make a thousand dollars, then ten percent of a thousand is a hundred, minus a thousand is nine hundred. So your taxes are negative nine hundred dollars, meaning the government gives you nine hundred dollars. At ten thousand you break even, 
10,000 times 10% is 1,000 minus 1,000 is zero, and so on. So um, how would a negative income tax decrease the leaky bucket effect as opposed to a UBI? Because you mentioned that. And uh, also, can you define what you mean by homework land? Yeah, so homework land is just the... uh, let it's the parallel universe where undergraduate homework problems exist. It's where you can safely ignore things like administrative costs, fraud, all those complicating features that make the world more interesting than just a supply and a demand a supply curve and a demand curve. All of those don't exist in homework land. Um, okay. And the reason why a negative income tax uh, is in a less leaky bucket is because there are fewer uh, transactions that take place. So think about that uh, sticking with the 10% tax and the $1,000 dividend. In the $10,000 case, under a UBI and a flat tax, then uh, I send the government a check for $1,000, and then the government sends me a check for $1,000. Whereas uh, under a negative income tax, I just send in a receipt to the government or whatever showing that uh, no taxes are owed in either direction. Okay. It's, I mean, that that seems like a valid criticism, and yeah, it seems dumb to like send the government 1000 so they can send you back 1000 but doesn't every government program in the world have administrative costs and possible leaky bucket issues? It seems like a relatively minor complaint. So it's a hypothetical, so take what I'm about to say with a grain of salt, but the Niskanen Center, which is a very um, well-regarded think tank, did a cost estimate, and it would... and their estimate is not trivial. Uh, They are somewhat libertarian slash right-wing leaning. So uh, if you think they might be biased, take that for what it's worth. But they found that the administrative cost would not be nothing. Uh, Plus another benefit of the negative income tax is the sticker price is a lot lower. Uh, it's in fact about an order of magnitude lower and so that makes it a lot more politically palatable it's an order of magnitude lower than UBI yes uh, with the Niskanen Center's uh, estimate they come to a total cost for a negative income tax of 182 billion uh, whereas a negative income tax or a UBI of five thousand dollars would come out to 1.6 trillion how how is that remotely possible? I mean, because as far as I can tell, they're just different words for the exact same program. Am I misunderstanding something? So basically, the negative income tax would uh, send out a lot fewer checks. With any pretty much any sensible funding mechanism, the uh, UBI would claw a lot of it back. But um, depending on how you feel about the American electorate and their ability to tolerate nuance, they historically don't, don't respond well to arguments along the lines of, no, no, this program won't actually cost us this much money because we'll just tax a lot of it right back. 
Mm-hmm. I think that's that's one of the points to me that I think catches for like the the counter. Well, I guess what I'm trying to say. Um, I could see many. Uh, you mentioned the American electorate, so I can I can imagine many of them being resistant to the idea of a negative income tax because quote like why the fuck am I helping pay them when you know they're whatever too stupid or whatever to not be poor. Um, whereas if everybody gets a thousand dollars and they're like, Hey, I get a thousand dollars too. I think that's a much easier sell to the American people. Mm. Yeah. I guess the psychology behind it is vastly different. I mean, on the one hand, like if you're of the mind where like, why am I paying my lazy neighbor's bills for him versus like, Hey, 3000 bucks. Yeah. Yeah. So this argument has become a lot weaker since 2016. Uh, I admit that. (laughs) there used to be a party of fiscal responsibility in the united states uh there used to be a party where when there was a policy proposal they'd actually look at how much it cost and make sure that the electorate knew what that number was uh that party no longer exists so that is a much better criticism than i would have credited four years ago I I would argue it's been a lot longer than four years, but that is not what we are on topic here today. Maybe it's maybe it's only been the last few years where they've been able to stop pretending that they're the party of fiscal responsibility. Okay. Uh, yeah, that that's uh, a better way of putting it. There was a party that pretended to be the party of fiscal responsibility. So I don't know. I think in the end, I mean, if it's an order of magnitude, it's obviously not worth it. But if it's just like twice as expensive to do UBI as opposed to negative income tax. I kind of think it might be worth swallowing that cost because I think it'd be much easier to get people to sign on to a UBI than to a negative income tax. Just, it sounds better, right? To many people, I should think th- I should think so. Right? Like, I'm getting the check no matter what. It depends if you're asking, I guess, the American people versus policymakers who actually know what they're doing. Or me, who for some reason has an opinion on this and doesn't know what he's talking about. Or David, who does know what he's talking about. So <laughs> I, I think there's also the well, aspect... Well, let's, let's not be hasty. <laughs> <laughs> I think there's also the aspect that I would feel that if it was a negative income tax, it is up to the vagaries of the IRS and it could be taken away from me like if a law is changed or if policy is slightly altered. Whereas like a UBI, I'd, be, I'd feel more secure that... It's it's now, you know, the law of the land that I get $1,000 a month no matter what. The other major thing there that occurs to me is that we don't have a negative income tax, but you do get, like, food stamps and other benefits if you're under a certain income bracket, mm-hmm. which to many people on these services incentivizes them to stay on those services, which means, like, you know, don't pursue a better-paying career if you can because, like, that bridge between... I've seen I've seen graphs. I couldn't quote the numbers, but you're getting so much in aid that if you were to go just above this line in income, right. then all the aid goes away. But you're still way below like the purchasing power of like things like food and electricity than that you had before. So you're incentivized to not try to earn enough to climb out of that hole. Yeah. So I guess between that and I can see how how a negative income tax would help with this a bit too. But I liked, I mean, I being a non-economist and. Uh, I guess, swayable to a a persuasive sounding politician like Andrew Yang. I really liked one of the things that he mentioned a lot was like, if if, if I got $1,000 a month, I being the general person, I probably won't save that because I'm an American. I'm bad at saving money. I'll (laughs) I'll go, if I do, I'll give it to a bank and they'll spend it and they'll, that'll help the economy a smidge. Mm -hmm. But the other thing is like, I'm going to go buy a thousand dollars worth of stuff every month or $500 worth of stuff, which is a lot. Mm -hmm. And that sales tax goes back into the, the whatever 
ecosystem of money and I'm buying more goods, employing more people. So like, you know, even if uh, like McDonald's has to raise their, their wages because, well, I could, I can earn $800 a month working for McDonald's or I can earn a thousand dollars a month sitting on my ass at home. Then I'm going to stay at home and earn the thousands. So McDonald's will be like, well, all right, we'll pay a bit more. Well, you and they do pass both, that. Though. Exactly. That's my point. They'll pass that cost on to the product, but now I can afford a $3, uh, what do you call it? Big Mac because I'm making a thousand dollars a month that I didn't have last month. Yeah. I think it it also feels different because like if you get a thousand dollars a month for doing nothing, or you go to McDonald's and work for eight hundred dollars a month, you're getting eighteen hundred dollars a month, now, right? Right. Absolutely. Yeah. Whereas like the negative income tax, you might still end up getting that, but it still feels more like you're paying taxes, and the government is just like deigning to let you have some of that money back. <laughs> right. It's. I know that's not how it would actually be, but it. it the feeling really is different, and I think that matters. It's hard not to feel that way. Yeah. Yeah, I think the negative income tax might. I mean, to the extent that you would say one of one or both of these programs disincentivizes work, the negative income tax might disincentivize work on like the lower end, like people working for McDonald's or driving Lyft part time more than a UBI, since they would count that as like part of your income and then that would be taken out of the income tax versus you'd still get your thousand and then, yeah, you'd get your however much you're getting from Lyft. Does any of this seem remotely reasonable to you? Yeah, so the so a couple things. Um, there are two different discussions when you're talking about both UBI and negative income tax. There's the, uh, we had this neat idea and we want to layer it on top of the current system. And we had this radical earth-shattering idea and we want to nuke the current system and replace it with this. Ah. So... Uh, so depending on which of those conversations we want to have, and I'm happy having either or both of them, uh, I'll have different responses to those. Um, also, so the, so the reason why a lot of economists like UBI is because it preserves what's called the marginal incentive to work, which is basically the way economists think about this is... For the next dollar I earn, how much of that dollar do I get to keep? And the thing about UBI is the UBI itself does preserve that better than the negative income tax, but the UBI has this big looming question hanging over it of where does the money come from? And uh, uh, my, my belief is that a flat tax on income is really the only plausible way to do that. Um, but if you want to talk about something other than tax policy, then I'm happy to do that. I'm curious why you think that's the only way to do that. So there are basically five ways that you can fund a government program. There's a progressive tax, a flat tax, a regressive tax, debt, and inflation. Debt and inflation would be a bad idea, but explaining why would be a podcast in and of itself. So it's probably best if you just take my word for it on those two. Pretty sure that we're not fans of either debt or inflation anyway, right? Despite debt being so popular, nobody loves it. So, <laughs> um, but, yeah. so um, I, Sorry, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to ask, um, how does like value-added tax factor in? So a uh, value-added tax is a regressive tax. Uh, it's regressive because if you're poor, then you'll will spend a higher percentage of your income on consumption than uh, you will if you're rich. Uh, you're 
very, very likely to consume the hundredth dollar you make a month, but uh, the ten thousandth dollar you make a month, you're very likely to spend or to save. And so the nice thing about regressive taxes is you could actually use them to fund UBI. The not so nice thing about regressive taxes is then you would be taxing poor people in order to send welfare checks to rich people. And that seems like not a very good idea. Uh, you, so the three the three kinds of taxes that you mentioned, what are the three, uh, like, just names and definitions really quick? I'm not a tax person. Yeah, yeah sure. So there are uh, progressive taxes, which is when your income goes up, you pay a higher percentage of your income as taxes. There's regressive taxes, which is as your income goes up, the percentage you pay goes down. And then there's flat taxes, which are uh, the percentage of your income you pay as taxes are constant. Uh, so, for example, a 3% income tax or 10% or whatever, just however much you make, it's always 3% or whatever that you send to the government. In general, I'm not a huge fan of income taxes on humans, but I've I've tried to spin a few times a VAT tax as uh, like an income tax on robots. Wouldn't it be less regressive if it was mainly income tax on returns to capital? Uh, you know, such as an income tax on robots, and then it would be mainly the owners of factories and other, you know, large labor replacement devices that would be paying these rather than the working poor. So that's not a... That sounds more like a capital gains tax than a value-added tax. I I see what you're saying, and it does sound very much like a capital gains tax, but it would be the way I'm picturing it, more of a tax on the the returns to capital from using non-human labor devices. Yeah, for replacing people. Basically, yeah. Right, so instead of paying whatever an hour to have uh, people stock your warehouses and move your goods, you're paying, instead, instead of paying the wages for that, you're paying at least a percentage of that back in taxes to have robots do it for next to nothing. Right. Yeah, okay. I mean, that would be hard to administrate, but... I feel like that would get around a lot of the taxing the poor problem with VAT taxes. Also, why isn't progressive taxes more like, to me, it sounds like a great idea. Like, what was yeah. it? Uh, um, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, my new favorite congressperson. Oh, God. Um, it, I, don't get me wrong. There's there's a hundred things. But the, the main thing is that, uh, well, I, I won't get into the main thing. A very a small aside is that one of the things that she's pushing or that she's a proponent of is I forget what it is like charging or like whatever 50% tax after everything over $10 million a year. Okay. And so if you make $20 million a year, you pay whatever the flat rate is for up to 10 million. And then you pay 5 million of that other 10 million in taxes. Well, I mean, we do have progressive income taxes in the U S but that, no, nothing like that. No, no, not nearly to that extent. But I mean, currently the income tax at least does work that way. Right. But I, I, I mean, I love, I mean, this isn't me like, you know, some poor proletariat person like, you know, just scrounging in the door complaining about this. I just think it's like if you're making $10 million a year, if you're making $20 million a year, the other $5 million is like if, you, if you're if you going to claim you need that, then fu like kind of fuck you. Like we need like the society that like built your infrastructure to make your millions needs it more than you do. Yeah. Yeah. I, David probably has a better answer for this. The one that immediately comes to mind for me is that. The more you progressively tax the rich, the more they're going to shelter their income. That's actually exactly what I was going to say. Oh. I haven't yeah. like read any papers on this because it's the first time I've heard the idea. 
But Inyaz, I feel like your idea would probably just mean we get both, what's the word, outsourcing to a different country. I think that is the word, outsourcing. Yeah. Yeah, uh, Yeah. you just get both outsourcing and mechanization. Yeah. Damn it. Well, as we all know, trade wars are good and easy to win, so <laughs> if you want to put the tax on both robots and outsourcing, then maybe... What we really need is an omnipresent, omnipotent one-world government. <laughs> maybe. <laughs> I thought you were going to say AI, but... <laughs> that You know, that. how else would you get that, right? Hmm. I mean, I'll, I'll give it a shot. <laughs> <laughs> as long as you can never go back once you try it. Okay, Um. response to the argument against progressive income. And uh, this was... Uh, you, you had like posted an article in the comments. Like We can post it again. The uh, What was the author... The Samuel Hammond article. Uh, someone in the comments had put that they suggested maybe there could be a progressive uh, land value tax used to fund the uh, either, you know, um, negative income tax or the UBI. And what do you think about that? Because uh, you can't shelter land that well. Yeah, so land value taxes, uh, wealth taxes in general, um, all of those are really tricky because they depend very heavily on the valuation of a good that's not on the market so you can if you're willing to just get rid of the concept of property rights uh glenn weil has a really interesting idea to deal with that which is basically you list a price for your property uh and that's what you that's the price used for like taxes and whatever but if i come to you with that much money you have to give me the property i think the concept of property rights has served humanity pretty well so i'm not eager to implement that but it is an interesting idea and as far as i can tell it would get around the problem but yeah just in general those sorts of wealth taxes are really really hard and expensive to administrate and you can tell that by just looking at the list of countries that used to have wealth taxes and no longer do i have the list right here if you'd like me to read it off no but you could probably uh, email it to us and we'll put it on the website okay it's just like seven of them, but... Oh, okay. Well, sure. Uh, yeah, it's Austria, Denmark, Germany, Sweden, Spain, Finland, Iceland, and Luxembourg. Huh. And uh, for uh, all of those which I googled, which was like three of them, uh, the reason that the tax was repealed was just that it was so expensive to do the audits and the administration that the tax didn't actually end up raising that much revenue. Good answer. Also, in that uh, article you mentioned, there's a link in that article to another article, which is a biography of the guy who came up with the leaky bucket um, quote, and there's a quote from him in that, and it says, uh, uh, high tax rates are followed by attempts of ingenious men to beat them as surely as snow is followed by little boys on sleds. So if you want to like cover more on this, I will go ahead and let you have that opportunity. But I want to transition sort of into like the idea of UBI is to help future proof us against, well, I guess the future, like as 
as more and more gets uh, labor gets given to machines that are better and better at doing what used to be human tasks, uh, more and more of us will become unable to participate in a meaningful way in the economy. Uh, how how do we future proof ourselves if if we don't do something like UBI? Is there some other better way? So if there's a benefit to UBI over the negative income tax in that case, uh, I don't see it. Um, if you have one in mind, then I'd like to hear it. I don't, but I just felt that UBI is uh, a better way to implement it and to sell it to yeah. the public. Um, also, won't the administrative costs be cut by replacing multiple federal programs? I mean, assuming you're in the uh, nuke the current system camp with uh, one UBI program. Yeah, that's a good point. Like we have currently, I don't know, I'm assuming many dozens, if not hundreds of different kinds of like social security type situations if that just all went away mm-hmm. and even if we couldn't maybe wipe it out overnight because you know people who wanted to stay on it for the next 40 years could or something until like everyone on it stopped needing it because they died yeah. um then everyone's just getting the same basic blanket um then we i got hold on before i get too far ahead of myself some people might make more than whatever ubi is in benefits if you're like taking care of like a special needs loved one and have whatever need food stamps or something right mm-hmm. but it does seem like this would curtail a lot of those programs, the one that manage, you know, small amounts or something. I hear that means testing is pretty expensive, both both for the government and a lot for the people that need the assistance. Like a lot of the most badly off just can't do it because they aren't don't have the, the mental ability or emotional ability to go through the process. You said means testing? Yeah, yeah. That's what, to like find out if you earn enough to need this? Yes. Gotcha. You're going to have to slow just slow down for me. Sorry, sorry. No, no, you're totally fine. And I'm... I'm, I'm I am not playing dumb. I really don't know any of these things, but also I'm asking for the benefit of listeners who might not know these things either. So, right. Yeah. I guess I did kind of blow through some things too fast earlier. <laughs> no, no, it's 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 totally fine. Yeah, uh, we were we were basically just saying, it it the current um, programs are expensive too. So wouldn't the UBI like one of the things I hear about UBI is that if you do the nuke and replace strategy, it would probably not cost any more than uh than the current things, or at least that would knock down a substantial chunk of it. Yeah. Okay, yeah, sorry. So um, if you're talking about UBI versus the status quo, I do prefer the UBI for that exact reason. But the negative income tax, which I think is probably what we should have, doesn't have that much in the way of means testing. Like, my understanding is that current systems or current programs, you need to show that like you're old, you're you have some disabilities, or you're taking care of someone who has disabilities. Uh, there are all these hoops you have to jump through. But the negative income tax is just what's your income, dev- or multiply, then subtract, and uh, that's your uh, the benefits or taxes you owe. So would you? Are you a proponent of negative income tax, or do you, are you not a fan of either of these? Yes, I am. A, so, so that's kind of hard to answer without getting pretty far afield. Just ver- the very, very short version is I think there are a lot of ways that the government kicks poor people in the teeth, and I would like them to stop kicking poor people in the teeth. And if they stop that, and we still have people who aren't able to afford as much healthcare and food and housing and whatever as we want them to, 
then a negative income tax is the way to get them to where we want them. But I think it's not unreasonable that if we got rid of occupational licensing and zoning and all the other government policies that hurt poor people, then being poor would be easy enough that uh, what's left could be covered by private charity. But if I'm wrong about that, I'm okay having a negative income tax. So I guess you might have mentioned this earlier and it went over my head, but does negative income tax get you out of that, whatever, that trap where you're kind of incentivized to keep earning as little as possible? Um, or not as little as possible, but to keep earning under that threshold so that you keep making your negative income? Um, or rather, you keep benefiting from the negative in- income tax? Uh, yes, it does. Okay. You're, so the uh, So if the tax part of the negative income tax is, uh, say, 20%, then for every dollar you make, you get to keep 80 cents, as opposed to the current system where there are some discontinuities so that if you make an extra dollar in earned income, you can end up uh, losing on total points. Uh, that The negative income tax does not have that, which is why... Uh, again, economists really like it. Okay. Um, and like, not to keep beating up a negative income tax, I actually think that UBI is kind of the idealistic version of what I would like, and negative income tax is like the much more realistic version. I'm very pro both of them, especially compared to the status quo. But just since you're kind of the pro negative income tax person, uh, uh, another argument I had was uh, wouldn't negative income tax... Uh, not encourage like middle bracket people to spend to spend more than they would normally like ubi might so might it not be as good for the economy as ubi could possibly be so the issue with the middle income people is the ubi payment isn't a free lunch you can't just make money up well you can just make money up here it's called inflation and like i said it's bad for complicated reasons so then the issue is how do you get the money and uh, the money to send to the middle income people and is that uh is that worse than the benefit you get from them having more spending money and that depends on how the um on how the funding mechanism is structured, but generally speaking, uh, or I at least have a very strong prior that uh, whatever the government taxes is probably going to end up being worse than uh, what the money would have been spent on anyway from a welfare perspective. Cool, got it. Okay, that was all of my... (laughs) arguments that I struggled to find for why uh, UBI was... Oh, you had more? I actually have a question for you. So, what benefit do we get from sending uh, basically sending welfare checks to Bill Gates and Jeff Bezos? Um, I think part of it was the loss aversion argument, which I think was brought up in the uh, Samuel Hammond article, but then he kind of just dismissed it. I I think that um, human psychology is actually pretty powerful, and it was kind of what we brought up earlier, the idea that uh, if everybody's receiving a 1000 nobody's really going to fight against it, versus the negative income feels a bit more unfair, even if it's not. Um, the other thing was, uh, oh, what was it? 
I've got one. So, oh, go ahead, Stephen. So what, would, so what would you say about a low overhead UBI, which is, um, which is rhetorically identical to a UBI, but administratively identical to a negative income tax? Um, what I was saying before, honestly, uh, I'm I'm actually pro the negative income tax as a. I, I think that they are really analogous. Uh, that the UBI and then the low overhead are are all like things that I would vote for. Uh, what did you have to say, Stephen? I was just going to say that, like, there are a handful of Bill Gates and Jeff Bezos people in the country where there are, I don't know, 150 million Americans who could strongly benefit from $1,000 a month. So, like, yeah, we'll be giving a few rich people, uh, you know, extra money to pad their wallets. But, like, if that's the cost of helping the rest of the people who actually could benefit from it, that seems like a very small cost to pay and one that I think everyone would be kind of okay with. Um, I could totally see, you know, some Mitch McConnell style politician saying, you know, look, they want to give your money to Jeff Bezos and Bill Gates, blah, blah, blah. But like, I feel like that would be a lot less salient than the argument of like, look, we want to put a thousand dollars in your pocket, no strings attached. So it I guess it feels th- more fair. Yeah. That's does- basically the loss aversion argument. Yeah. It's, it's loss aversion, but it was also just like the numbers. Like, yes, we'll be helping rich people, but there are very few rich people and there are uh, a lot more people who, uh, to whom a thousand dollars is like the difference between, I don't, you know, living in financial insecurity, worrying that you know if you strain your ankle going up the stairs, then you're gonna lose your apartment, you know, like, and I mean this is like I guess an argument from like emotion, which isn't how I usually do things, but like I, I don't know, man, I I, I know a number of people, and I've been in the situation most of my life where like a thousand dollars a month would have just been this enormous relief of a security blanket. And granted, a negative income tax could, could totally provide that, too. And so I think that would be, um, you know, a good bridge on the way there. I think the like the ideal solution would be just like find some way of like, all right, cool. Everyone who's not earning above X, you get a thousand bucks. But then like the weird part is then, OK, well, I'm earning exactly nine hundred dollars a year over what it takes to get a thousand bucks. I'm inclined to like skip a few days of work or something. Right. I, I so this all gets convoluted somewhere near the middle for me anyway. But. Yeah, that's where I'm at. Okay. Did did you have anything on that, or should we move on? Yeah, so I'd just say that the inefficiencies that come into play when you're talking about UBI don't really exist when you're talking about people who have income levels similar to ours. Uh, they come into uh, play when you talk about people with income more like say, my parents and, like, comfortably upper-middle-class people would, uh, under a UBI, end up getting a check from the government which gets immediately taxed back, and I just don't see why... I don't see any benefit to from, like, behavioral economics or anything like that which overcomes just the basic silliness of having a bunch of people get a check from the government and then having to send it right back plus extra yeah plus paying the people in the middle to process the checks yeah so there, there is that loss of overhead uh of the you know paying the processing in the middle part but i think that is a price that it would probably be a price we'd have to pay in order to get all those people to vote and sign on could be i mean so that i think might bring us a bit like aside from like the economic argument right mm-hmm. um but that is not 
<laughs> was it did robin hansen coin the phrase homo economicus no no it's uh, been long okay. right, no long that's super old yeah well i think i heard about it probably somewhere on one of his posts but like probably. yeah g- given that that's not those aren't the players involved that it really is just the people hearing speeches watching tv and you know being told we're going to give you a thousand dollars or we're going to give your money to people who you know either need it or don't deserve it depending on your political slant um one of them is just an easier sell mm-hmm. but yeah i don't so, have a lot to so that's a that's a factual claim about what the voters would or would not support and i don't know which of us is right if you are right then uh sure ubi might be a better idea than i'm giving it credit for but i don't know that there's any anywhere productive we can take that disagreement without calling a halt to the podcast for a couple of hours <laughs> to look at poll data yeah yeah no, that's totally fair um david are you uh basically then in agreement with the samuel hammond article which was the uh leaky bucket like ubi is negative income tax with leaky bucket yeah so uh like i said he takes as given that uh the welfare state is a good idea and if we're talking about this sort of radical social change, I'd like to uh, at least check to see whether or not it's necessary. But given that we do have a welfare state, I'd like it. I am in agreement with the Hammond article, yes. I got a question about uh, one of the things that you, one of the your bullet points that you have in the document you sent us. You said one basic assumption is that people are income maximizers, not income satisficers. And this claim is moderately controversial. A few segments of society, like kindergartners, like kindergarten teachers, seem to suffice. But a model with a substantial number of satisficers would mean that a UBI has serious implications for productivity, which hurts the case for UBI. Do you think that? Do you think that this would be a big problem if a lot of people who are just working to satisfy, uh, you know, just working to get enough money to live, would drop out of the workforce? I don't, but. It, I felt obligated to include that because there are very smart economists who disagree with me. Why do they disagree? Because I kind of get feel like people who don't want to work shouldn't necessarily have to be forced to if they could live on $1,000 a month. That is a big can of worms. I'm going to try to go through it as, with taking as little time as I can. Uh, Basically, uh, so I disagree with you about, like, what wages and profits are. I think those are not perfect, but they're pretty good measures of the value you contribute to society. And if you're going to be taking things from society, such as apartments and food, you should also have to put something back in and that is wage labor. So yeah. if you if you believe what you believe about the nature of work, then you're correct, but I disagree with that. And that's just a values disagreement and I'm not sure there's anywhere productive we can take that. I think it's it's a values disagreement, but I think it's one that like I think bears out like in the history of just being um I'm trying to think of like a way that doesn't sound like politically slanted, but like progressive. Like I know people who are, like I mentioned, you know, the the mentally handicapped, 
like many people can't work. And so like the idea is like, well, I guess since you can't work, you're useless to society because people have to take care of you. So you're just a drain and you don't deserve to be taken care of. Right. I mean, and, I, I, I see your point and on, on some instinctive level, I agree with it. But on the other hand, you know, right now the people who are quote too unproductive to live are usually taken care of by people who love them. Uh, and there could be a point not too terribly long from now when 90% of the human population is too unproductive to live. And I just don't think saying, okay, so 90% of the human population gets to not live anymore is a reasonable answer. So, so for one thing, it wouldn't be 90%. Uh, with the most pessimistic uh, estimates, it would be something like uh, 66% which are the number of, of Americans, anyway, who have money and savings. Um, basically, if you, have, if you have a friendly AI takeoff that, for whatever reason, doesn't uh, think that putting money towards, like, letting people not starve to death is a good idea, then, then you haven't basically had a friendly the AI benefits would accumulate to anyone who has any money and savings. And 34% is probably enough to be covered with charity because the returns to AI would be so huge. And uh, if not, then again, we can talk about a negative income tax. And there's also the issue to consider that uh, if you do have most of the workforce replaced by robots in some capacity, the cost of living would absolutely plummet. So, like, it would be reasonable to for someone to be able to live on a bare fraction of what you need to live today. And again, that's assuming that we somehow get a friendly AI who doesn't turn us all into paperclips and yet doesn't think that helping the people who don't have money and savings would be a good idea. And I don't really see where that could, uh, how that could happen, though people at Miri might disagree with me. I, I don't think anyone at Miri would say that a friendly AI takeoff that resulted in, like, the negligent deaths of two-thirds of America would be a friendly AI, for, would be a friendly AI takeoff. Well there, uh, would, well, there would be survivors, so I don't know. I, I, it might be an AI takeoff. Like, I, I don't want to, this isn't an argument about the definition of capital F friendliness, but uh, like, I so I guess that whole thing aside, what were, what were you going to say, Inyash? Oh, I was just going to say, I don't even think you need full God mode AI. Just, you know, several decades of uh, major corporations having very strong AI powers that they aim at places would basically result in the same thing. Yeah. So this, this I mean, it could just, yeah, it could just be, dumb automation right. i mean so what was it mit and i think the white house uh back in like 2015 or 16 put put out studies around the same time that put had estimates of something like 30 percent of the labor market um or excuse me 20 percent of the lab labor market being automated by 2030 which is coming up right around the corner so things like cashiers shelf stalkers drivers and even if cost of living does plummet it's still not zero and people who can't get a job because they just don't have anything productive to offer still have an income of zero. And there's, there's, I guess, some estimates that that could be one in five people in the next 10 years. 
the yeah, but the thing you need to remember is that labor isn't labor's only asset. So if you own a home, you will see the return to AI because your property values will go up because you have a house there instead of an automated factory. Uh, if you have any money in savings, then you'll see the return to AI because stock prices will go up. Uh, and uh, the much maligned creature known as the stockholder is actually nowhere near as rare as most people think they are. But those aren't the people that are, are you know, don't have a savings account because they're, they're earning nine bucks an hour bagging groceries at Safeway, right? Yeah, no. but yeah, but that's, again, that's not... 99% of the population you're talking about, that's around 34%. Right. Those are the ones that I'm talking about. Are- I, I don't want a third of the population to die, but 34% is a pretty manageable problem when you're talking about charity uh, in a world where the cost of living has gone down as much as it would if uh, all those menial jobs were replaced. Hmm. Uh, so how, how do self-driving cars and self-bagging groceries make my cost of living go down? Uh, you're, you buy things that are sometimes transported from one place to another, and if the only cost of that transport is maintenance and fuel, then the cost of those things that are transported, which is basically everything you spend money on, will be much lower than if you have to pay a trucker. No, that, that makes sense. I, I just figured someone might ask. Um, and then same thing at the grocery store. I'm paying not just for the stuff on the shelves, but to keep people there keeping stuff on the shelves. Jess, I saw you write, writing something down. Um, I think we kind of went past the point where I had some notes. And um, in the interest of time, I had some kind of random questions for you since you have the expertise in this field. Uh, David, if you wouldn't mind. Uh, yeah, I have a couple more things to say about this. Um, yeah, please. Then we can get back to it. So one of the big concerns I have, if you guys are right, uh, is that a UBI or an NIT, which again, all of that, what I didn't say was all of those concerns could also be covered by a negative income tax and it would have lower overhead, et cetera, et cetera. But basically none of that would really solve the problem. Uh, that would That's basically just sort of bread and circuses, just throwing money at social unrest to get it to go away, and it wouldn't actually solve the problem of people lacking economic opportunity and political agency, which, like, I'd rather have a stable world than not, but I'd rather have a genuinely stable world than, than one where just there's a hollow stability because we're throwing money at people i don't know how we could do that and you're talking about but uh if we can figure both ubi and figure it out then that would be a better thing to do than um than just having a very generous welfare state um as far as uh the bread and circuses analogy you were saying that that would be both the nit and the ubi correct Yes. And um, uh, again, I, I don't have a solution to that in mind, but we shouldn't think, oh, we just need to implement these policies and then we won't have any problems. Yeah. Like that's, uh, that's a, to a certain extent, it's better than nothing, but to a certain extent, 
it's putting band-aids on bullet wounds. Yeah, and that's a whole other discussion and probably beyond the scope of this podcast. I mean, this episode, yeah, anyway. Yeah, you're probably right. But, uh... Okay. Uh, you had a thing about, um, also in the document sent us, there isn't much reason to believe that AI will cause unemployment because comparative advantage implies that humans will still be employable even after the takeoff, as long as AI aren't perfect substitutes for labor. Could you expand on that a little? Yeah, so there's this principle in economics called comparative advantage, uh, which basically, even if, so the easiest way to understand it is with an analogy. Even if America is better at producing both computers and corn, and you can tell I'm getting this example from a textbook that was written in the 80s, back <laughs> when we still made computers in America. And corn. Uh, I think we still make even corn. Even if America is better at making both computers and corn, uh, as long as we are even better at making computers than we are at making corn uh, relative to Mexico, then it's we're still we maximize welfare by America making all the computers and Mexico making all the corn and then trading. And the implication of this for AI is as long as AI isn't literally identical to human labor, then there will still be a labor market. Uh, because even if the AI is better than humans at everything, then they're very unlikely to be exact mirrors of humans. And as long as they aren't exact mirrors, then there's room for specialization and gains from trade. I think, tell me if this is a good analogy. Uh, I read The Golden Age, a science fiction book by John Wright, where he explained it as, uh, even if there's a task that an AI can do in one minute, and it would take a human one month to do it, uh, the human... Uh, if they can spend their one month doing that task, it frees up the AI to spend that one minute on something else that's even more valuable. Uh, and in that case, it would be still useful to have that human around. Is that is that um, a good comparison story? Yep, that's a, that's a pretty good summary. And uh, if you want me to send you like a homework problem that I can put in the show notes, that's um, it's actually something you can prove mathematically. Again, you can prove it in homework land, so there are, should be asterisks in all the appropriate places. But um, yeah, that's a that's a pretty well established principle in economics. We'll totally put that problem up on the website. Yeah, totally. I want to dive more into that, but I want Jess to get some chance to go over some of your stuff. So yeah, so let me find my random questions. Okay, I'm gonna just uh, use. A... Sorry, one other thing I do want to. Um, to say about that, uh, and I don't want to talk about this too much because, again, it's a podcast in its own right, but if you think that argument is wrong, that belief is very hard to square with support for a minimum wage uh, because basically what a minimum wage would do would just throw gas on the fire of workers being replaced by robots. So I think that's... All I want to say about that, because if I say any more, then we'll be talking about it the rest of the night. But uh, it's pretty hard to uh, both worry about technological unemployment and think that uh, minimum wages are completely benign. We have wanted to do a minimum wage episode for a long time, so we may take you up on that in a month or two. 
honestly though, that find that very persuasive. So like, yeah, if, if McDonald's, we tell them we're gonna have to pay $15 an hour to your employees. They're like, fine, then fuck this. Like the, the, the standard counter argument to raising minimum wage is like, we'll find someone who's willing to do it less. Mm-hmm. And if like, we're not allowed to make anyone do it for less, we'll make something do it for less. Right. And so they're going to find a way not to pay it. Yeah. Um, there's a really cool study coming out of Seattle. Uh, so I am happy to come back on and talk about that because it's really good. Just like as an economics nerd who likes really well done econometrics. So yeah. Let me know if you want me back on. Awesome. Dope. Cool. All right, Jess, you have the floor. Okay. Yeah, I'm going to just use UBI to mean UBI or the negative NIT. So um, here's some random questions. Uh, at what age would you start distributing a UBI? Uh, late. I'm not sure exactly when, but probably n- I, I would not start it any earlier than 18 i would ideally like to start it at late as, as late as like uh 21 because um if you have parents with dependents who are collecting the benefits then the funding problem just becomes even harder because the parents need to pay so much in taxes that they cover benefits for the parents and the children and not just the parents so uh yeah i would i would put it very late and that also does address the uh potential perverse incentives problem where if uh you give it fairly young then there's incentives for poor people to have as many children as possible so they can get as much uh money from the negative income tax or UBI uh, and that could it has historically not worked out very well for uh, actually making poor people better off especially since they'd have to neglect the children so the cost of the kids is less than what they're getting yes oh there's there's also the component that if I had a thousand dollars a month as a 15 year old I feel like a lot of people would have been seriously hurt by all the dumb shit I bought <laughs> like fireworks uh, oh you'd be helping the economy oh I'd be helping the I'd be helping the, the medical industry for sure <laughs> okay um so almost like the opposite question um would you prefer a UBI to replace social security Ooh. so would I want a UBI to replace Social Security? Not necessarily. Would I want a UBI with a flat tax or a negative income tax to replace Social Security and the payroll tax? Absolutely. Payroll taxes are such a bad idea. <laughs> I, Again, if you want to have a really wonky podcast, I can go off about tax policy, but I'm going to leave it there for your listeners' sanity's sake. <laughs> Too bad. That sounds kind of fun, but... I always just kind of su- assumed that it would replace Social Security. Like, it would be <laughs> the one income... one-stop income shop. As long as we can get rid of payroll taxes. <laughs> and that's the one that we all pay, where I get paid every month. If I make 15 bucks an hour, I take home 12 of that. Yeah. That's okay. also, the surprisingly, the one regressive... As far as I know, the one major regressive income tax in the U.S. Where it charges poor people more? Yeah, because it caps. Uh, you don't pay it once you make over like 81000 or so. Which is super weird, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you pay it on everything you make up to 81000 but then it stops after that. Yeah. And it might have gone up yeah. since I last looked at this. So the big problem with uh, 
which this is getting into the weeds, so feel free to tell me to shut up if you want, but the big problem with payroll taxes is it's literally a tax on jobs. Yeah. And yeah. as every first-year economics undergraduate knows, if you want more of something, subsidize it. If you want less of something, tax it. And if you tax jobs, then you have fewer jobs, and jobs are generally seen as a good thing, at least in the world we live in, if not in all possible worlds. So, yeah. Isn't it payroll taxes suck? Isn't an income tax basically the same thing? Uh, no, because um, I mean, so again, there's a similar problem where you have income hiding and people spending their income on non-taxable things, but uh, basically, income taxes are easier to avoid, and yeah, I I think uh, evading payroll taxes is a moral thing to do <laughs> but it's very very hard i actually think evading all taxes is a moral thing to do but huh How, do you do you propose a society without any public any public funding of anything i do on mondays wednesdays and fridays <laughs> um i i i'm going i'm going back and forth on the anarchy question basically my opinion on anarchy is the same as Scott Alexander's, um, at least on Tuesdays, Thursdays, and weekends. Uh, I want to see it tried somewhere very, very far away from me so I don't get caught in the blast radius if it goes wrong, but there's at least good theoretical arguments for why, uh, for why an anarchist society would be a pretty good place to live. I believe it was tried in Somalia for about 15 years. No... No, no, God. <laughs> Somalia is what happens when you have a radical Islamist regime that is also socialist. And yeah, that goes pretty dang bad. Hold on, and wasn't Somalia in the... In Somalia, you actually did have a lot of the things that David Friedman talks about, like uh, private judges who uh, competed and competition drove down corruption. So... Somalia is both not an example of anarchy and also kind of an example of why anarchy is pretty good. I'm not sure you can have both, but wasn't Somalia also the country that was without any form of government at all for about 10 or 15 years where war bands roamed the countryside? Yeah, it was without any government at all for 10 or 15 years after you had the aforementioned Islamist socialist government that burned everything down. Right, I'm talking about the post-burn-down period. And if, you, and if you have a really, really uniquely bad government set everything on fire, and then they go away, that's pretty bad. But that's not what I'm talking about when uh, I'm talking about anarchy. Uh, I hope it would be a much smoother transition. Okay. I got. I see what you're saying. Yeah, well, you, you always start at a shitty position if someone's burned everything before you start. Yeah, uh, Somalia is a straw man at best, and uh, an example in anarchy's favor at worst. So, all right. Okay. Uh, let's see. Two more random. If you guys can link in the show notes, um, Scott Alexander's review of the Machinery of Freedom. It's very good. I vaguely remember reading that. I'll have to reread it. Sounds fun. 
It does. Okay. Um, yeah, two more random econo-sociopolitical questions about UBI. So how would you propose getting this UBI money to people who aren't connected to the tax system, like the homeless, the unemployed, uh, non-citizens? So, um... Wouldn't non-citizens just not get it? I, I'm trying to think of the, like, politically correct word for illegal aliens, and I can't think of it. Oh. Yeah, I, I'm kind of... So... I'm kind of okay with them not getting it. Yeah, that might be its own uh, whole thing. Especially if that's the price to be paid for open borders. As for the homeless, uh, again, homelessness is to a, at least a larger extent than people appreciate a problem caused by government. If you look at places that have relatively relaxed zoning laws, um, they don't tend to have much of a homelessness problem. Uh, and there was actually, I can't remember the details, but there was a case where a private charity built a bunch of tiny homes that were basically just 10 by 10 boxes with mailing addresses for the homeless. And, uh, I think it was in San Francisco. It might've been LA. I'm not sure, but, uh, yeah, the, the government, cause they didn't comply with, uh, zoning laws. The government just bulldoze the houses and set fire to them yeah. we've got we've got a something like that in uh denver too where it hasn't been bulldozed and set fire to yet but there's yeah a lot of regulatory issues with whether people are allowed to make these tiny homes for the homeless or not yeah so um as for how to uh how to help them without uh, get ridding, getting rid of the stupid laws that are currently hurting them. I don't know, but that's a pretty intractable problem for any system you have. So the main takeaway is just get rid of zoning laws as soon as possible. Hmm, I like that. I, I think just one quick anecdote. I know that when I worked at the bank, at least a couple people that come in relatively frequently were, if not homeless, they were homeless adjacent. And... I think as long as you can get your paperwork together um, enough to prove to somebody, you, if you're fortunate, you know, maybe a caseworker, social worker who can work at that population, they can help you prove your identity, give you a piece of government issued paperwork that says you are who you say you are, and then you can collect social security and that sort of stuff. So people would come in whatever first Monday of the month or whatever and grab their social security check all in cash. And those people, I'm pretty sure didn't go home afterwards. So Yeah. I was just curious whether a UBI or uh, an IT system would have some kind of advantage over the current one or disadvantage. I don't want to sound like a heartless asshole, but I'm kind of um, in favor of people who aren't citizens not being included in the UBI. Yeah, I mean, like, I maybe you should just strike that one from the list. That's, a, again, a whole other conversation. Okay. Uh, Milton Friedman did famously say a uh, welfare state is incompatible with uh, open society, meaning... A society with open borders and um he's actually wrong you can have it as long as you're comfortable saying you can live here and you can work here but you're not a citizen and we're not going to give you these nice things we give to citizens uh which i'm perfectly comfortable with but a lot of american voters aren't for some bizarre reason it might just be bottom lining but and historically that's how most of the human race worked like there were a bunch of city states and if you were a member of the city you got the benefits of being a citizen and if you weren't you could live there and you could work there but you weren't a roman so you didn't get all the protections and 
you know, benefits that the Romans or the Venetians or whoever it was got. This yeah. isn't, I'm sorry, go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, I like it as long as there is some path to attaining citizenship. Right. All I was going to say is that while that might be historically true, and this isn't me taking a stance, historically, living as a human has often sucked. <laughs> right. So, like, the uh, argument from history isn't persuasive as, like, the way things should be. Yeah, no, I'm just saying that it, it's entirely possible and people have done it before. Totally. Alrighty. And the last one, maybe it's a little bit, uh, a little bit connected. Um, David, how do you think uh, geographical locations might be affected by a UBI or an NIT system? Hmm. I'm talking about, uh, you know, agrarian uh, locales versus the cities and where people choose to live. So the biggest issue there is um, just that cost of living is so wildly different in different places. And uh, like I hail from rural South Carolina where a thousand dollar check you can live uh, per month you can live comfortably on uh, from I am given to understand that in San Francisco that would just about cover uh, about a quarter of your monthly rent so that's one of the bigger arguments for this that something like the status quo over uh, either UBI or negative income tax is just it's more flexible with respect to differences in cost of living from place to place. Do you think we'd see a bunch of people I moving out? I don't know how we could address that other than just like having some sort of cost of living index. I mean, that might not be necessary. Wouldn't It's entirely possible that we just see a bunch of people moving out to the country where it's cheaper to live, right? I mean, I don't know if I would necessarily because there's a lot of stuff in the city that I like, but like if I could convince a large chunk of my friends like, hey, let's just go live out in the country where it's cheap as hell. We'll still have each other for company and the internet for internet stuff. Why not? And it would free up city room for people who want to live in the city for some reason. Yeah, so people aren't that mobile. Uh, that's something that an argument very similar to that. Um Economists have been talking about it and debating it for a while, but just if you look at places like West Virginia, where there aren't any jobs and yet people don't leave and go to where there are jobs, it just seems like locations are stickier than uh, that argument assumes. I think it's much easier if you don't have any friends or family you care about. And you have the means to like take whatever shit you have and move a thousand miles, right? Right, right. Like I mean, but the less shit you have, the easier that is. Yeah, I mean, if it involves a lot of walking, though, still people don't want to do it. Right. But hitchhiking exists. I mean, but you, many people can get money together for a bus ticket. So, I guess then you get there and like then what? You know, then you just can afford to live less because you've got no one, no one's couch to crash on and stuff. Right. I think. I think. I think then you get to spend a year deciding whether or not you want to live a life where you don't do much of anything. Or, or maybe you want to decide this isn't for you after all and move back to the city where you can strive for things and be stressed, but also in the game. Hmm. I don't know. It'd be at least kind of interesting to have the option. I mean, you have, we, there's kind of the option now. But you're saying if, you, if, there was, if, there was, like, if they already had some net income already. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So certainly, yeah, if, I mean, if you go from making $0 a year to making $12,000 a year, then you can ha then you have the means to leave wherever you're at and do stuff, right? Yeah. So. Go somewhere your money goes further. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's weird because I have a friend who lived in Mexico for about a year, 
and uh, like southern part, less developed part of Mexico, didn't have a great internet connection, but had a good enough internet connection to still get his job done. He could do a lot of it offline. And yeah, he said the cost of living was so ridiculously cheap. He was basically living like a king on you know the U.S. salary he made. But in the end, he ended up moving back to Denver. Hmm. Yeah, you see a lot of these uh, digital nomad types, and you, I think don't see very many of them that aren't like in their 20s and 30s. So it's kind of interesting. So all that is to say, yeah, that's a problem, and uh, but it's again not really a problem that we can get around very easily. So. All right. Yeah, that, that's all I can think of. Uh, Stephen or Nia, do you have any questions? I think. I covered most of them. I'm sure something will come to me right after we hang up. <laughs> uh, but we do uh, still need to get to the less wrong posts and then, you know, get some sleep in tonight. So uh, we're probably going to have to wrap it up. Do you have uh, other things you wanted to mention or something that came to mind during this conversation that you'd like to talk about? Uh, yeah, so you should probably use computer wizardry to put this way way earlier in the conversation like right at the beginning okay but just so you know where i'm coming from even though i've made it pretty clear i'm a libertarian uh i have deep anarchist sympathies so much so that on some days you can catch me calling myself an anarchist uh but i depending on where you put this I either hope to or think I have done a pretty good job of just sticking to the economics and not bringing, or at least very clearly pointing out where I'm bringing my personal values into it rather than just letting the the numbers and the efficiency arguments speak for themselves. Yeah, I think, I mean, for it, we'll put it wherever you want, but I thought it was fun to learn that about you as it came out throughout the episode. So, um <laughs> It, we'll move it to the back or to the front, whatever, to the beginning if you want. But I, I thought it was fun to, to hear about. And you've put your cards on the table. I think anyone and like the, the part, the, the points where you were clearly expressing those um, those intuitions and priors. I think you did so in a way that wasn't like pretending to be couched in in uh, whatever carefully cited studies or something. I, I feel like you were very transparent and fair about it. So, yeah. Um, if you want us to put it in the front, we totally will, but I kind of like it here because that would feel like, like seeing the, the, the Darth Vader, Luke, I'm your father reveal at the very beginning of star Wars, you know, <laughs> leading up to it is part of the fun. I have mixed feelings about the analogy, but I get what you were trying to say. Okay. <laughs> I think Are? it's a compliment. Yes. <laughs> I'm not sure if you're Luke or you're Vader, but either way, you're entertaining. <laughs> and and not just entertaining, but informative to talk to. Yeah, absolutely. This was great. And to everyone, well, I guess everyone who can't see your face, you have this awesome beard that I'm very jealous of. Hmm. So that's 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 a big point. But I had one random question, not about your, uh, your professional uh, contribution to, or what am I trying to say? Uh, whatever to why we asked you on, but everyone that we talked to listens to the show. I'm kind of curious how you heard about it and what got you into rationality and all that. So what got me into rationality, I have maybe the, not the weirdest origin story, but uh, probably the least expected origin story I know of for any rationalist. I was actually Ellie, I was hate you with this car and <laughs> uh, Harry Potter and the methods of rationality by my church youth group leader. <laughs> huh? Right on. Yeah. That is not, yeah, not someone I would have expected to recommend it. Yeah. Uh, and then from there, it was the usual 
downhill tumble of um, of methods of rationality into the sequences and then into all the other rationality things. Did you ever did you ever find out why the youth group leader recommended this? Yeah, because he really liked it. And, uh, I even when I was still calling myself a Christian, I did a pretty good job of like keeping the fundamentalists away, which was very very hard living in the back end of nowhere, South Carolina. But I somehow managed it. Uh, so like the people I hung around with were the people who like actually thought about. Things like evolution and creation and that sort of thing intelligently. And even if they come down on what I now believe to be the wrong side of those questions, they didn't just shrug it off. Um, so That's awesome. Yeah, I, I don't think we've ever specifically talked about it. And like we haven't talked to each other for uh, quite a, a distressing number of years. Um, not because I, like, miss him or anything, but just because I don't like feeling that old. Mm. But, um, yeah. And, uh, as for I, how I found the podcast, it was via the audiobook. Uh, which, by the way, Inyas, if no one's told you, the Rationalist audiobook is a very noble public endeavor, and, uh, you win many, many virtue points for doing it. Aw, well, thank you. I, I'm very happy that people have found so much use and joy out of it. Seconded, but I told you that before. So. Yeah. And I, thirded. I, I, I like to imagine that your youth group leader just like was never a believer and like just showed this to as many people as possible and like just <laughs> took the role just to subvert the church. Right. But maybe that's uh, me being... The, the Facebook posts he's put up for which I have since unfollowed him uh, are pretty strong arguments against that, but it's a nice thing to think, I suppose. Uh, I mean, I guess he could be playing, you know, really heavily undercover, but, you know, yeah, you you're, you know him better than I do. <laughs> Someday might be worth it just to send him a thank you note, being like, your recommendation changed my life, thanks. And deconverted me, and now I'm going to hell, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe keep it vague. <laughs> I might have I come to it anyway, because I've been a fan of Brian Kaplan for a really long time, and you can only be a fan of Kaplan for so long before you encounter Hanson. Mm-hmm. Um a slippery slope to Robin Hanson. Yeah, that's that's the that's the path I walked. That's awesome. Even if it sometimes feels kind of inevitable. Yeah. Well, thank you for coming on. This has been a delight. Yeah, seconded. This this was great. Yes, it has. All right, and uh, we'll get back in touch with you about maybe doing a minimum wage thing. Sounds great. Cool. Looking forward to it. All right. Uh, thank All you, right. and uh, have a great evening. Yeah. Great thanks, David. Okay. David. Have fun with the other sections. Yeah, thanks. Awesome. Thanks again, man. Mm-hmm. Yeah, have a good night. Night. Good night. Okay, on to our less wrong post section of the episode. Yay. Boop, ba boop. Our first post this week is Beware the Unsurprised. Uh, I guess I'll start uh, it? Uh, yeah, sure. Okay. We, um, didn't have, we, didn't, we didn't pick an order. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we really should have thought of that beforehand. Um, so basically... The, the point of the post is that um, people often try to not look surprised. Uh, some people may actually be genuinely unsurprised when their models are wrong uh, because, as Eliezer says, that a 
Breeder pointed out, uh, if their models are so vague that they don't understand the implications one way or the other, uh, they may not be surprised. Or if they appear unsurprised, if they or they may appear unsurprised if they fail to emotionally connect to the implications. Uh, for example, an asteroid is going to collide with the Earth in ten years, and they're just like, okay, let's get let's get little Cersei to the doctor. Oh, I will put in a relevant Saturday morning breakfast cereal. Mm. Um, to this it's not they, they emotionally register it but it's hilarious and it's relevant so going for it oh right i guess we'll have to actually put yeah, it on the I, website. yeah i, I yeah, could i can. could try and paraphrase the cartoon but yeah. i would ruin it you got to enjoy smbc as it is on the page heck yeah, yeah. can't really do audio versions of cartoons <laughs> yeah um and also uh, they mentioned that some people don't want to appear to be surprised by surprising seeming data you mean unsurprised well yeah my yeah appear to be unsurprised because um that makes them look more uh, confident and in control and competent. Like, well, I wasn't surprised by this. Uh, my model was already perfectly fine the way it was. I totally expected this. So, um, yeah, those are these are all situations in which people may be unsurprised by what should be, what is a surprising event in, in their model. And then there's like the, the classic example of bystander effect where there's a number of things going on, but one of them is like, you can look calm and unperturbed and it like gives you like this air of this isn't really this is tangential to bystander effect but like if everyone's freaking out and you're keeping it cool you kind of look like a cool person mm. um and since everyone's kind of trying to do that a little bit then like somebody collapses in front of you on the street and like you look cool because i'm a cool composed person mm. and like you're casually looking around to see if this is an emergency but everyone's doing the same thing you're doing so everyone assesses that it's not an emergency because no one's overreacting yeah um, that was gonna be the second point Okay, yeah, my bad. I jumped ahead. No, it's okay. Uh, do, well, did we have anything to say on the first point aside from what we already had? The whole... Mm-mm. No? Not really. Okay. I, I do think it's kind of scary that uh, some people might just have such vague models that they don't even realize they're surprised because the model really didn't predict anything either way. Yeah, that's just... I think that's kind of what we talked about in the last post, too. Is like, then you just... You don't really have a model of reality. You just have, like, this thing that you say you believe, but, like, it doesn't mean anything. It's not connected to any other beliefs. Yeah. That model's not paying rent, right? So, going to your second post, the point that you jumped on is that, yeah, if you're looking around and everyone else is acting cool and you're acting cool, then nobody... Nobody is uh, actually treating an emergency like an emergency, right? And uh, he's saying that, right, since everyone else is also basing their actions on uh what everyone else is doing then uh everyone may believe that something isn't really as big a deal as it is like someone collapsing on the street or something uh therefore everyone looks unruffled fails to act and so appearing unsurprised even when you are or pretending to yourself that you weren't surprised is both personally detrimental and socially detrimental it is it has negative effects on the rest of society when you act unsurprised on purpose because uh, that is information that you are denying to other people and things that may need to be acted on are not. Yeah, I think this is kind of related to one of your strengths as a rationalist is the ability to notice when you're confused. Mm-hmm. Confused and surprised have like slightly different meanings here, but it kind of lends a lot more weight to something if you're surprised by it and uh, gives you a stronger motivation to update and yeah, when you're signaling that to everyone around you, then everybody's updating their models the appropriate amount. Yeah. I don't know. It feels like the kind of thing that I've talked about with, you, with, the, with the two of you, but I don't remember doing it. Um, did I mention, at least a few years ago, Julia Galef mentioned on one of her podcasts that she kept a surprise journal? Yes, you um, did mention that. Yeah, which is just a nice way to, like, even just, like, lowbrow calibrate, like, 
and I'm, I'm not writing these down, I guess, because I'm lazy and don't write stuff down, but I've been like trying to document just like minor things about my life a little bit more. Um, not as a regimented thing, but like mainly just to improve my like, uh, well, in this case, my commute. My commute is a little shorter than I thought, which mm-hmm. kind of surprised me, which means like I can sleep in for another 15 minutes if I felt like it and get to work still on time. Like somehow the train goes about the same distance as the train that I used to take to my last job, but it's like 10 minutes shorter. Huh. So that's cool. Yeah. yeah. It's, I mean, it's not, again, it's a very, very minor surprise, but it's one that I noticed literally in the last two days. So I should absolutely keep surprise journal. I feel like that would make me a better rationalist. And I think it's just kind of a fun practice in mindfulness too. And it'll help you like notice when you're surprised. And help you track like your changes over the years. Yeah. Yeah. It'll help you pay more attention to the things that you're not surprised by, but that you are still noticing in the background. Yeah. There's a lot of stuff that you ignore just because you're so used to seeing it that it's like blended into, <laughs> it's camouflaged. Um, what do you think about, there's this kind of other thing that the media does about being over-surprised or exaggerating their surprise about everything new that we learn. Oh, right. I feel like that might have the same kind of negative bystander effect, but like to the opposite uh, extent. Like, you mean like the outrageous science headlines? or Yeah, like every, every you know, science headline ever is like, scientists are baffled. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I my general rule, and I didn't invent these, but there's a handful of them that I don't know if I could track down the name of the list, but it's like, how to like notice clickbait and just answer to it. So like if the, if the headline is in the form of a question, the answer is always no. Mm-hmm. Um, That's a common one. So, or like scientists can't believe it's like, yes, they can, or, <laughs> or you're wrong. Um, so yeah, I, I can, I, I'm not a, social scientists but i would bet a thousand dollars that there's no way that's not damaging society i mean you hear again big capital words headline this new revolutionary treatment for whatever um i I can't remember how many times back before i left facebook i saw that you know we've got a treatment or a early detection for alzheimer's or something and it's still not around because you know it turns out like whatever the ability to smell peanut butter was like loosely correlated with like 30 people or something right yeah, so, someone's proposed like a phase one clinical study or even something preclinical. like okay now we have some evidence that this might do this and we're going to test it and some you know journalist jumps on it as aha we have found a new drug right <laughs> and that, that's Alzheimer's. and that's super common with like you know the idea that like the plastic in water bottles causes cancer that was uh from like one study by a grad student at m or some Ivy League college, whatever, and their lab equipment was tainted with BPA. Mm. They're like testing tubes, and yeah. they discovered that. Published the re- you know the result got redacted, or they published the update. Yeah. But like nobody notices that. They catch the headline: cancer in your water, and mm. it never goes away. And that's still a thing that people worry about today, right? Yeah. The 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 s- vaccine concern that people have from Andrew Wakefield's bullshit oh my God. stuff, which was actual fraud. Yeah, not which, just someone fucked up, but straight up intentional fraud but but all the average anti-vaxxer knows is that some doctor found this was a thing and then whatever maybe got suppressed or something what they don't know is that he got his license revoked for malpractice and uh fraud yeah Yeah, so do you see the recent thing about the incredibly strong correlations between uh air particulate air pollution air particulate pollution and uh alzheimer's onset yeah apparently it's a really lot of um i mean still only correlation and they they would have to look more into it somehow though i don't know how you double blind that sort of test but uh it it made me really think twice about living in a dense urban environment this is not that dense no no no. this is not that dense at all uh I, i'm out in the suburbs and it's pretty nice but like i'm i'm less likely to want to live near a major street or in you know downtown denver itself denver yeah. in general is just not that dense you should co-see new york or new jersey sometime yeah. everything is so far apart from everything else here it's ridiculous 
I think it's just the idea, like the less the merrier. But yeah, that's that's nerve wracking. Um, this is totally an aside. Well, too far of an aside to get into. Other than I'll skip straight to the punchline, which seems like a non sequitur. That it's a travesty that you can't sign up for cryonics, or that rather you're not vi- whatever you can't cash in your cryonics benefits if you commit yeah. suicide and or use the whatever they call it if you elect to die from a terminal illness. Right. Yeah. Um. So like. If you have Alzheimer's and you're like, oh, great, I can, you know, preserve my brain while it's still in, still in good shape, you can't do that yet. Yeah. Uh, you have to wait until Alzheimer's kills you, which means that your brain is just a mess and there's very little worth saving at the end anyway. So You might be able to stop eating and drinking. I'm not sure if that would trigger the suicide autopsy or not. That would be that really mind. difficult, though. It would. Eh. I, I saw... Never mind. All this right. Is, yep. tangent. We'll have to save it. Sorry. Yeah. That's a dark topic. Anyway... Yeah. On a happier note, uh, sign up for cryonics. It's cheaper than you think, and yes. it's cool. Yes. Uh, both me and Steven were signed up. Are you signed up yet, Jess? Um, no, but I do Damn plan it, to. Jess. What if I... you had died camping this weekend? Yeah. Also, it's cool is also a pun because uh, cryonics. Oh Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone loves puns except me. <laughs> <laughs> Just had this mental image of somebody in like a cryo tube with like dark sunglasses and you had double thumbs up. <laughs> 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 if i get if i get to choose that's how i'm going in hell cool. yeah <laughs> all right how about the third alternative third alternative is a good one who wants to read this i'll jump in on this one okay so um classically the third alternative is also known as like the false dilemma or the false dichotomy or the excluded middle or the package deal fallacy basically it's the either or option yeah. you know um we need uh, give used, me a, give me a stupid example he used santa as an example that was a good one what was santa Right, yeah. So Santa, you know, well, we need Santa. We need the Santa myth for children to give them, you know, hope and uh, a sense of ma- mystery or whatever. I for- actually forget the argument. Yeah, and Even also I read they, it like they four hours ago. Act better as humans if they. Yeah. yeah. So then you say, well, if we take that away, then they won't have anything to give it to them. Yeah, and they, so, they'll have no hope. Everything will be joyless and dry and empty in their lives. Plus, they'll be naughty all the time. Right. So it's a great example because it's obviously bullshit. So there's there's a million other things that you can do to actually treat the goal of like let's give kids a sense of wonder, mystery, and uh, responsibility for their actions or something. Mm-hmm. I feel like uh, just giving them presents is enough too. Yeah. Like has anyone tried that? Just like hey, the, you know, on this day you get presents. Like do, are the kids more excited if it's like we don't know how these presents got here? Hmm. Yeah. Dude, maybe. Maybe. I think so. Like getting presents is still awesome, but like the mystery behind it is cool. But like you said, there's much better ways to give them that sense of mystery. Yeah. Like. Did you know that we're actually traveling around that sun up there and it's a ball of flaming nuclear gas? Yeah. I mean, throw some science at them and then throw a present at them and get that association go- going early and then <laughs> make some young scientists. Dude, that'd yeah. be awesome. There you go. Whenever I put up my Christmas tree, I always put like a book under it and I call it my tree of knowledge rather than my Christmas tree. Oh, I love it. That's oh, awesome. That's so nerdy. I love it. <laughs> I've got a niece that I can start bombarding with, with books for uh, trying to... Well, I don't know if I'll be around enough to try and like get that immediate pigeon feedback to make her and to meld her into a scientist, but I'll see what I can do. Cool. All right. So the the noble lie is the um the like the generally all package deal of fallacies where like it's yes we all acknowledge the people who in the know yes we know it's a lie but we tell it because it it society couldn't function without it. Right. You know Plato had his for like people have like a core of different element in them and like the gold people that's why there's like caste systems and like just you're you're happen to have a lower thing and if you're born really? if you're born believing that i think that's in the republic oh, okay um, so he believed in that I, he didn't believe in that noble lie it seems like but he he was like that's something that we could push to keep society together okay um 
or like the very popular one of like afterlifeism. Yeah. Where, you know, of course we, the sophisticated people, we know that you're just going to die when you die, but you guys couldn't handle that. So very condescendingly, we'll lie to you to keep you sheltered from the horrible truth. Yeah. Um, it's not clear to me in that argument, like how the noble liars think that they're doing okay, but no one else could. It is condescending. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Fair enough. Or like, yeah, the reason that they're calling this the third alternative is the idea that there's only this lie or something terrible as an alternative and there's not other stuff you could do. Like the example of it's either Santa or your kid is miserable and there's all kinds of other things that you <laughs> might be able to do to make your kid not miserable. Yeah. I think the core argument is that generally the, the noble liars and the, the excluded middlers are saying like your only real options are either this thing that I have already proposed or else uh, nothing at all. And Eliezer is saying that we can and should think of third alternatives, other ways of handling problems. It's not that your only alternative to believing in Santa or in believing in the afterlife is to not believe in Santa or not believe in anything. There's other alternatives that one can think of. Uh, one just has to do that. Yeah, and that's actually like harder than it sounds. Uh, Eliezer did bring up the just set a timer and think of stuff for five minutes. There's... um. I like looking up, uh, there's, a, there's a narrow framing exercise you can do, and that's kind of a similar idea where when you're trying to make a decision, you kind of like think of, okay, I've got two alternatives, and narrow framing is the idea that you're only thinking in terms of these two uh, these two options, and you're actually like psychologically blocking yourself from thinking about anything else outside of that. Is this the first post? I don't remember uh, if he brought up the five minutes by the clock thing before. I noticed it in this post, though. I think this is the first post where he actually uh, starts the meme of think about it by five minutes by the clock. Don't just like say you're going to think about it and then give up after a bit. Look at a clock and really think and brainstorm for five minutes. Yeah, so this must be coming up shortly before hold off on proposing solutions because that's an important part. Like like Jess mentioned, like the, the narrow farming effect, if you grab two, you know, one or two guesses or uh whatever solutions that in your, in your five minutes of thinking, then you spend the next four minutes and 30 seconds, just analyzing those two. You've prematurely cut yourself off from like the search space. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, and more than likely you've, you didn't think of those two from like nowhere. You just grabbed two quick ideas that were already available. You haven't really considered alternatives. Yeah. yeah. And uh, like the reason for that, um, which he gets into in this post is the number of alternatives can be huge. So you need some kind of stopping criterion. Um, and he says, whether you're looking to buy a house or when you're looking to buy a house, you can't compare every house. At some point, you have to stop looking and decide. So that's why you would want to make some kind of exercise where there's a set in stopping point, like setting a clock. But oh, go on. I was going to say there's a there's a nice quote in here that I think just still is kind of the difficulty of this. Like the oh, there's a bunch. Actually, this is a good one. Everyone read it. It's fun. Um, but. Like, how can we obtain third? How can we obtain third alternatives? Well, the first step in obtaining a third alternative is deciding to look for one, and the last step is the decision is the decision to accept it. It sounds obvious, and yet most people fail on these two steps rather than within the search process. Yeah. Like, it's just basically, yeah. The first thing is like realizing that someone's come to you with a bullshit dilemma, and you're picking between two crappy choices, and just saying, you know what, I'm gonna go find something else. And that there's usually a ton of stuff to look for in there, right? Mm -hmm. so. Yeah, there is. Um, some of it can be really hard to think about for various reasons. And that, that's where the psychology comes into play. And uh, I don't think this article really gets into it. I could think, for example, uh, a benign one could be if you're looking for a new house, 
you might just be artificially restricting yourself to neighborhoods that you've already visited and that you kind of have an idea of what they look like in your head, but you don't think about that consciously while you're looking for a house. Yeah. Or um, you could also, if you're trying to figure out, oh man, what should I do? Like my relationship's not going so well and you're kind of thinking about, well, couples counseling or I could, well, you could leave that person. And then like, that's another thing that your brain just might be preventing you from even thinking about. You just flinch away from it subconsciously. All these techniques work so well together. It's like, I, I it sounds like nerdy reverence, but <laughs> I mean, the ability to, you know, uh, hold off on proposing solutions, not be afraid to flinch into scary looking ideas and just, you know, stare into like the, the uncomfortable possibility, like, oh, wait, the scary thing that I'm trying to avoid thinking about, I should actually like think about that and decide as objectively as I can, if it's a good option, right? He also touches on what I think later will turn into the privileging the hypothesis uh, post. Uh, it's it's a quick note about motivated cognition here. He says, but what about when our conscious motives for the search, the criteria we can admit to ourselves, don't square with subconscious influences, like you were just saying. Uh, when we are carrying out an alleg allegedly altruistic search, a search for an altruistic policy, and we find a strategy that benefits others, but disadvantages ourselves, well, we don't stop looking there. We go on looking. Telling ourselves we're looking for a strategy that brings greater altruistic benefit, of course. But suppose we find a policy that has some defensible benefit and also just happens to be personally convenient. Then we stop the search at once. In fact, we'll probably resist any suggestion that we start looking again. Pleading lack of time, perhaps. And I just, I mean, that's wonderful and true, right? Like the best way to... to get um I, I think they say on the internet the best way to get the right answer to something is to post the wrong answer yes because then everyone else is like that's not right and they spend all the time doing the looking for you and disproving you <laughs> and yeah that's the same thing like if, if you really want to test a claim then you can put forth some crappy argument and and find the people who are uh who are willing to to prove you wrong i guess yeah you could there's a bunch of exercises you could do yourself too uh, that's actually a good one is just coming up with the opposite of whatever you're trying to figure out making yourself brainstorm like uh, how could i write the crappiest novel possible <laughs> it was actually that was actually an exercise i did one time and it was really funny because then i just went through the list and kind of reversed everything and i was like now here's how i should write my novel oh, cool. and i generated a list i wouldn't have thought of if i was just thinking about like how could i write something cool hmm. that's awesome yeah. and see like that's the kind of like third alternative strategy that you probably wouldn't get from your average like learn how to write textbook right yeah i, I love doing stuff like that just to, if i could go like one more that i really love is uh how if i was like this is especially when you're trying to come up with a solution to some hard problem it's like okay if i had like all the money in the world how would i solve this or like if there was some like clever way i could cheat to get to the finish line how would i do that mm -hmm. and that can actually help you come up with stuff that you just were blocking yourself from thinking about either because you're scrupulous or poor or whatever i like that a lot um, yeah, I don't have much else to add to this one. I feel like I actually kind of spoiled the next one because I forgot that it was a th the, that forgot that was the third post. Mm -hmm. I thought it was the end of this one. I read them all again really quickly this afternoon, and I guess forgot that I clicked three tabs rather than two. Right. Um. So this next the next post then is third alternatives for afterlifeism, which I feel like isming everything is kind of condescending, but. <laughs> I I'll, think I'll it's supposed it to be. It's yeah. sort of sort of a, a needling at something. It is. Jokingly yeah, roasting it. Like I had a conversation with my life insurance agent who's also signed up for cryonics and is a big proponent of it. Um, and in fact, he wrote a book. Rudy Hoffman. Everyone look him up if you want. Uh, he's also got a book on Amazon. That's Rudy, R-U-D-I, Hoffman, I think with two Fs. Anyway, uh, 
if you do contact him and get signed up for Chronix, tell him I sent you. I don't get anything out of it. I just would be happy to hear it. So uh, I think we were, we were talking about, you know, like with uh, anti-chronicists and like the, the mean word for them is like deathists. Yeah. Like no one's a deathist. Like no one's a self-described deathist. And right. if they are, they're being a troll. And right. if they're not being a troll, then they're an idiot. So <laughs> I realized I just like to find somebody out of existence, but whatever. Um, like, but we use it to encompass people who, you know, are okay with death. And you attach an ist to it to make it sound like it's an intentional thing on their part, which mm-hmm. makes it seem ridiculous, which I get how that's a move, but now I'm tired enough. It's a enough. good move. Yeah. yeah. If you're if you're being sneaky. You know what? I'm willing to use a l- tiny little bit of gray arts uh, to get people to sign up for cryonics, especially because it's a very obvious gray art. I knew you you're just gonna... called someone a deathist. You I know, know, it's I not like you... they're... I knew you were going to say that, so I'm, I'm on board. Okay. And I and it's it's sneaky, but it's sneaky in a good way. Yeah. You know? It's kind of a reframing exercise. Thank you. That's, That's a much, much better, better way. Yes. <laughs> High five. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, third alternative to afterlifeism. Afterlifeism is exactly what it sounds like. People can't go on living knowing they're going to die, so we have to give them this fantasy of an afterlife, right? And uh, the, the question Eliezer proposes is that if the problem is that people are terrified of ceasing to exist uh is there some other way to combat that aside from this crazy afterlife belief thing and he asks did you close your eyes and think creatively about the problem for five minutes like as an actual straight up yes or no factual question to anyone uh, at all like either people who are pro this or against it have you just stopped for five minutes and really thought of other ways of of ending this existential terror besides the religion thing which is first of all a thing that i would like to say to a number of people i know who are like i want to say pragmatically religious they seem like they don't necessarily believe in any of the jesus and mystical spiritual stuff but just think it's a good thing for society in general i'm like that's great have you actually thought for five minutes if there's other ways to solve these problems that you say exist um because i think there might be and I think almost all of them would say, no, I have not sat down for five minutes with that goal of thinking of other solutions. To be fair, it's rare that I actually set aside five minutes. I, I mean, even since reading this post, what, seven or eight years ago, mm-hmm. like I've actually set a timer maybe twice. But what I have done is actually set a deliberate like focus period, whether like I'm watching a clock or not. Yeah. But, um, you even know, I think is... I did do that for cryonics, but I probably spent, then I thought about it for five minutes and then I, I spent months deliberating and talking to other cryonicists I knew. Um, but the, I don't know, I, the, the, don't take my, my lack of actually engaging the exercise as a, as a way to do it. I think whether or not you're using a clock, the idea is like that you don't say, all right, I'm going to think about this and then like not specify a time and then decide that you've done enough thinking after 30 seconds. That's what you're trying to avoid by setting a clock. Yeah. Uh, so Eliezer says that at the very least in, in, in alternatives for afterlifeism, I would cite medical nanotechnology the argument from actuarial escape velocity, cryonics, or meddling with the forbidden ultimate technology, which uh, when you click, these are all links to different things. Actuarial escape velocity is the idea that uh, as life extension gets better and better, we might get to the point where life extension starts going faster than you're aging. What I think Aubrey de Grey calls longevity escape velocity. Yes. Yeah. Uh, and the the meddling with the forbidden ultimate technology, if you click the link, is uh, over to intelligence.org, an AI research place. Uh, and I just wanted to point out that the reason this is called meddling with the forbidden ultimate technology is in part because at the time he was writing it, there was a moratorium about talking about AI stuff on Less Wrong. Uh, when he first left uh, Overcoming Bias, 
a lot of conversation kept like going back to that and distracting from anything else anyone was trying to say specifically about rationality and biases and those sorts of things so he's like all right i'm starting this website less wrong but for the first i don't remember how many months it was like six months or nine months or something but for the first x months no one is allowed to talk about ai at all we're talking about other subjects and then we'll get back to ai and i believe that is part of the reason it was called that and also you know for fun which is a really smart like strategy the whole endeavor of creating less wrong i think is just an awesome example of taking a long goal thinking of a of a way to do it that's actually hard he wrote a blog post every day for like two and a half years Mm -hmm. and all the steps that he did in the middle and including like the idea of this whole endeavor correct me if i'm wrong a other than raising their sanity water line basically it was to raise it high enough to get people to send money to fund ai research Mm -hmm. and so like if you're daisy chaining people along the way to give them all the cognitive tools they need to see that this is a good idea and to try to bridge that huge inferential distance by keep dropping AI all along the way, they're going to keep trying to jump to the end of the daisy chain road rather than walking it. Right. Right. And if they don't walk it, they're not going to learn everything they need to learn on the way there. So if they just, I think again, just high five. I don't, I, I think that was awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Also, there's a lot of other cool things that have come out of the rationalist community than AI. Totally. Mm-hmm. AI is cool and groovy, but, uh, there's a lot of really nice instrumental stuff that I've gotten personally, uh, epistemic stuff you know mm-hmm. there's all kinds of good stuff effective altruism was yeah. one of the major spawning grounds for that was also less wrong yeah i didn't mean to to say that was the only thing or maybe yeah, even yeah. the only intended goal but like if the collateral damage for getting more funding and more social support for ai research is making better smarter happier people right. then like so be it i don't think it was that cold and calculating but maybe it would have been if robin hansen did it right. <laughs> cold and, and calculating in the best loving way yeah hansen's great and also, you know, it is a common theme that this AI is the ultimate technology and probably should be forbidden until we figure out how to do it without destroying the world. So, fingers crossed. Yeah. God, that's that sounds like sort of grim. <laughs> <laughs> uh, he does say that any one of those third alternatives that he he mentioned stretches credulity less than a soul. Which, I mean, yeah, because depending on your priors. But well, yeah, magic has been uh, proven true zero times. <laughs> right. We've proven uh, you oh, know, you, you have all heard kinds the... of medical technology. And... You have not yet heard the good news of our Lord and Savior. <laughs> That's exactly uh... what I was going to say. <laughs> <laughs> there, There is miracles. There is magic. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, if you're coming from there, there's a lot more distance to cross there. Yeah. But yeah, at least each of those things is physically possible as opposed to a soul, which isn't. Totally. It's not even a defined thing. Really. Right. Yeah, I had chronics in the mind because I was talking to my life insurance agent uh, yesterday evening. And what's today? Tuesday? So yeah, a new coworker started my job yesterday. And me and a other guy in the office, when I was leaving work early to go talk to my life insurance guy, I gave him the five-minute pitch on cryonics. And uh, I forget where I was going with that. Mm-hmm. But it was fun and rewarding. And I'm well past the point where I'm like socially anxious about talking about it. So that was cool. Yeah. Um, I mean, like, souls are on the face completely ridiculous. And, like, if you get a lot of inculcation of it in, in your early childhood, it can eventually be, like, accepted. But then on deep examination, it's also completely ridiculous. <laughs> so, uh, on, on both both ends of the spectrum, it's just completely dumb. Like, what... It, it, it's hard to even compare the diff- the two, you know? Yeah, I think that's that's the important thing. And I get where, like oh, you know, medical technology, you're telling me that's more likely than souls, say, yep. says somebody. And then like, the answer is like, yes. Like, one, yes, it stretches credulity because it's 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 
mystery future tech, mm-hmm. but it stays within everything that we currently understand about physics. Yeah. There's no reason this shouldn't work. And like for me to believe what you believe about magic or souls or whatever, like that requires a huge, that requires me to throw out their established model of physics. Yeah. And that's, you're not, that's not, you're not providing enough extraordinary evidence for why that's true for me to throw away the standard model. Yes. Um, there's a last bullet point here that I wanted to ask you about because I think you put in the comment on it. I did. So afterlifeism stands immediately convicted because it cannot be the best strategy, even as a noble lie. Yeah. And Inuyash asks, really? Yeah, because he, he um, stressed even as a noble lie. And I think that all those tech things are definitely, um, well, I mean, they're true. They're, they're not mystical fake magic stuff, which is a huge point in their favor. Uh, but they're all things that can work in the future, right? And so they're very convincing, not very convincing, they're much more appealing to people who still have a lot of future in front of them. Like Eliezer wrote this in the tw- in his 20s. Uh, the majority of the reader base then was late teens to late 20s. Uh, even nowadays, rationality is more of a 20s to 30s kind of thing. There's not that many people over the age of like their mid 40s in the movement. So all those things are still great for people who are youngish, but like someone who's 80 and on their deathbed, they're obviously not going to get the benefit of medical nanotechnology or the longevity escape velocity or meddling with AIs. Cause they got like a year at best. Maybe they got cryonics and that's if they can afford it. That well, that, yeah, that's if they can afford it. Well, yeah, that's if they can afford it, which is a big if to a lot of people who are in their eighties that don't already have life insurance policy for this. And it it just seems like for someone like that, the only thing you have left is either accept that I'm going to be extinguished or or believe in the noble lie. Like all those other things don't work once you're ready at the end of the life. Whereas the soulism thing, you're at least like, ooh, there's there's a chance, you know because the other things are now impossible. Yeah. I think you're absolutely right. I think like if if you're on your deathbed and there's no time to do anything else, like it should be nice to believe a consoling lie. Like just, just to stave off the horror of the next few, whatever, however long you have left. Maybe it depends on the person. I think Christopher Hitchens was just fine. Yeah. That's true. But to him, death wasn't a horror. He was, I think what we might call a deathist. Like he wasn't, he wasn't pro death, but he wasn't like he, I don't think death was the enemy to him. Right. Um, and like Richard Dawkins, I can, I'll find a great YouTube video of it. Um, he has in the opening, I think the beginning of the second chapter of unweaving the rainbow, it's this beautiful, um, couple of paragraphs about the, the, in the scientific sense of the word miracle of being alive. Yeah. The implausibility that you managed to be here and have any experiences at all. Yeah. You get time in the sun in the universe and on, on the earth. It's, it's that, that just saying that fills me with this like sense of gratitude and, and wonder. And there was a time like between when I like got out of religion and when I got into, I don't know, being totally horrified of death that I found that very consoling for a few years. And in a way it is like, even if I end up being annihilated, like being alive was cool. I'm glad I had the chance. Um, should be nice if it, you know, didn't go away, but, um, (laughs) the, like, I think, Oh, I was going to say as far as like a forbid, uh, uh, another noble lie, a better noble lie, I think by anyone else's, like by the rationalist metric would be like chronics works. Yeah. No, that's, I absolutely agree with you. Yeah. Oh no, this works great. It's just, you know, be ready in 20 years. 
Um, <laughs> so I, mean, I think it's a lie. I think it's something that you hope for. Yeah, right. Exactly. But but if we were going to pitch it in the form of a noble lie, it would be a better lie than the soul thing because it's more plausible. Yeah, and it actually has the collateral damage benefit of saving people. Right, or at least potentially saving them. Yeah. 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 The yeah, I think the the afterlifeism also has uh, all this inertia from all of society, like being on this train. Not all of society, but a lot of society being on this train and pushing this and it being taught to you as a child all those things are advantages that are absolutely unfair and stupid but i think do make it easier to swallow and to find comfort in it uh, especially when you really need it at the end of your life for a bunch of people yeah if that's so. where you're at like i i remember when i was like losing like during that fun phase in high school where i argued religion with a lot of people that'd be kind of like they're like line of retreat where they'd like you know take their last stand and like you're gonna tell somebody in their deathbed that like religion's bullshit and that it's not true mm-hmm. and i think for the first few times i was asked that i was like yeah they should know better mm-hmm. but that wasn't like really thinking when you get a moment to really think about it like no i'm not gonna ruin someone's happy delirium like when they're literally dying i think mm-hmm. there's a difference between going and like if it's someone who already believes in a soul and is comforted by that like bursting into their deathbed <laughs> and being like hey guess what <laughs> but like if it were you know i, I wouldn't tell somebody who didn't believe in souls that like oh don't worry you're gonna live forever in right. cloudland yeah, yeah playing a harp with little angel wings and doing i don't know what all day uh watching after people yeah like, they spend a lot of time doing yeah that's why i think it's just it's a slight overstatement to say that afterlife afterlifeism is immediately convicted because it cannot be the best strategy even as a noble eye i think in some rare cases it can mm. i don't think galeries would disagree with you on that okay. but that's me totally whatever typical minding yeah (laughs) well i'm just thinking like i don't think he had that edge case in mind i think he thought of like the general like live afterlifeism that we give um is better better supplanted by any of these examples in the general case i think it's even better supplanted by just thinking about death better um yeah the richard dawkins version is beautiful and and enchanting and and comforting in a way yeah i have this book by Greta Christina. I think the title was uh, Better Ways to Think About Death That Don't Involve God. Uh, I'd have mm. to find the title exactly, but... It's a great title if it's if that's not it. <laughs> I'm kind of just... Well, it was very similar to that, but like, if, if I were that 80-year-old, I would rather be hopeful about cryonics or medical advances working for my children or my friends' children or just like, you know, other humans that aren't me. Mm. Like, it's not all about me. Also, the whole gratitude about like, man, it sure was cool that I was able to be here. And instead of thinking about fake magic stuff and being all consoled by it, I'd rather spend my last few minutes kind of having experience. I don't know that like maybe the experiences are just like being in incredible pain, but mm. you're not going to, I don't know if souls are really going to make that that much better. Yeah. I think to be fair, like when you're being consoled by the noble lie of afterlifeism, you don't, you're not like consciously aware that you're being consoled by the noble lie of afterlifeism, right? Mm. You just feel safe and secure. And so like, while it would be, great to know that like medical science will will keep my my grandchildren from dying or something if i actually just thought like i don't want that because they're gonna join me in heaven in 60 years like if i really believe that in my heart of hearts like i feel like that would be probably a great way to feel Hmm. maybe i well how could it not be yeah if you thought heaven was a great place and you thought you'd see everybody you cared about and they'd all see you later like i remember when i was a teenager i knew somebody whose parents were young earth creationists and they were like super fundamentalist religious people and one of their um, one of their sisters died, and they were like distraught, seeking therapy for months, and they were like a wreck about it. And like mm-hmm. I totally understood because I wasn't at the stage at that time where I was like fourteen, where like I would be okay with somebody that I cared about in my family dying or something. Mm-hmm. But I was 
I wasn't quite so tactless to ask, like, why does this bother you? Like, mm-hmm. aren't you going to see her again in 30 years? Like, isn't she, like, way better off now than she was a month ago when she was alive here on Earth because this place sucks compared to heaven? Yeah. I So, at least in one use case, and I'm given to understand more, people say they're comforted by this, but they really aren't. Like, it's still terribly distressing and stuff, so. Yeah, I remember being a Christian kid and believing in heaven and then still being very scared of death and not wanting my friends and family and pets to die. It's like part of you knew. That's interesting. So, well, yeah, I mean, it's, I think most people are probably compartmentalizing that because like we still cry at funerals. We don't like laugh and go, oh, it's great that this person died or, or we don't all commit suicide because heaven's so great. Right. Well, the, like I think the, the, the episti- or what do you call it? The mimetic advantage of that is like you can't, your, your meme can't say, if you die, you get here no matter what, because everyone, and if everyone believes that going there is great, they'll all just kill themselves immediately, right? You have to throw in the package. Everyone gets in, unless you kill yourself. <laughs> yeah. Right. That's why, that's why suicide's a mortal sin. Um, yeah. Right. I guess moral of the story is, unless you plan to have $100,000 when you die in cash, or, you know, the inflation-adjusted equivalent, uh, get insurance now and sign up for cryonics. Yeah. And honestly, see. you'd have to sign up for cryonics anyway, but uh, also get the insurance to fund it. Yeah, the five-second pitch is that Cryonics Institute charges 120 bucks a year, which is substantially less than your Netflix subscription. Or um, one-time pay of uh, one-time payment of $1,000. Exactly, yeah. So if you're planning on being a member for more than 10 years, you save money that way. Or nine years, mind over math. I have um, now reached the point where I'm saving money. Nice. Yeah. I need to do that this year, I think. My mine re-ups in May. And a life insurance policy for a healthy-ish 20-something-year-old is like 30 bucks a month, mm-hmm. which is not nothing to take a stick at for a lot of people. It was hard on me the first few years, but yeah. like, if you can swing it, man, look at the rates for signing up for life insurance in your 50s. It's it's hundreds of dollars a month. Yeah. It's yeah. insane. So, And, you know, just, just the fact that if I were to get cancer tomorrow, I wouldn't be like, well, shit, I'm probably fucked. I mean, I'm still probably fucked, but like, at least now I have that glimmer of hope. Whereas if I were to get it tomorrow, I'm like, damn it. It's too late for me to get life insurance now. What am I going to do? This is the kind of thing that you should have set up. Yeah, I I should have. Yes, exactly. As they say in Poland, it's too late to dig the well once your house is already on fire. (laughs) I thought it was going to be, never mind. (laughs) (laughs) Awesome. Well, that sounds good. All right. We're getting close to the end, so we got to finish this up. Sounds good. Uh, Our... Go ahead. I was just going to, oh, well, I'll save this for the non-existent um, side topic section that we'll get to after we plug the next time posts. Okay. We have scope and sensitivity, one of my favorites. I think everyone's familiar with it at some point. Mm-hmm. And one life against the world, which sounds super dramatic and exciting. So stay tuned. Excellent. Um, or read ahead and join us in two weeks. Yeah. And links will be, as always, at thebasianconspiracy.com. That's right. Okay. But. Before we sign off, yes, I sent you guys a message earlier this week. Did I you? Mean, it might have been the weekend. Okay. Uh, speaking of all this soulism and afterlifeism, God's real, guys. Is it? what? E3, mm-hmm. they launched a trailer for Breath of the Wild 2. Oh, right. Nothing's been more compelling evidence to me. <laughs> We've had people write in, send us some cool arguments. <laughs> and uh, no, man, they don't make sequels to Zelda games. They certainly, I didn't think they were going to make a sequel to Breath of the Wild. It looks like it picks up right after the first one. There's this is this is proof positive. Finally, it's a miracle. It's a miracle <laughs> in every sense of the word. <laughs> um, oh, that said, uh, I should find. Give me just one second here. Oh yes, great Reddit name. Operation Question sent in uh, a link to a podcast that I actually enjoy um, called Philosophize This. And the I've only listened to four or five episodes. Um, the authors or the host clearly has like a slant. Basically, it takes 
philosophers or specific ideas and just talks about them for like 30 minutes in a cool way. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's approachable if you, you know, miss having a good philosophy podcast in your life because you listened to all of the Philosophy of Bites episodes when they were out in 2000, whatever, 11. Maybe they're still making them. I don't know. Whatever. Mm-hmm. I haven't had a philosophy podcast in my feed for a long time. So it's a good, it's a good fun thing. So thank you, uh, Operation Question. And that's Philosophize This. Yep. Philosophize This with an exclamation point. But I just put in F-I-L and it found it anyway. But maybe it's smart search or something. F-I-L? I don't know. F-I-L? Or Jeez. All right. Time to sign P-H-I-L. off. P-H-I-L. P-H- I was, I was looking at it, read, <laughs> looking at the letters. And I still phonetically said it. Yeah. It's spelled philosophize this like you actually spell both of those words. Not okay. like I just tried to spell it. Cool. And I think that's all I should say for the night. So before we sign off, I have one last thing. Patron. Uh, what's that? We got to think of patron too. And I almost forgot. Yes. So we got two more things. Yes. Sorry. Uh, the thing before the thanking the patron is that uh, this episode will release on July 3rd. And uh, which means that when this episode releases, my novel will now be officially out to buy. Uh, it'll be in its first week of release. Just have released a few hours before this episode. Uh, it'll be available both in ebook and in paper versions. Uh, if anyone has any interest in reading this, buying it someday in the future, I would like to ask if you know you're going to buy it anyway at some point please buy it in the first week that makes a huge difference for amazon's various algorithms as to whether they will show this to other people or you know recommended anything uh the really the first week sales are are unreasonably highly weighted uh, in my opinion but that's what they are so uh uh please if you are going to now would be a good time I would also say in promotion of my own book, uh, when I was writing this, I workshopped it at the Northern Colorado Writers Workshop, which is a writer's workshop which was run by Ed Bryant, not anymore because he died a couple years ago. But Ed Bryant, a big name in older sci-fi, he won two Nebula Awards, uh, presented you know, at the Nebulas. He worked with Stan Lee on some comics. He worked with George R. R. Martin frequently. On their um, their uh, wild cards. You guys series. can hear my expression changing. This is this is all this 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 keeps getting higher and higher in awesomeness. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, Ed Bryant was a name back in the day, and uh, you know he he helped me out in a few places. Uh, he had some nice things to say, but probably what I will never forget is that in one of the he he was old fashioned because you know he was old at this point. He died basically of old age. Uh, he. Uh, always wanted all his stuff in paper copy like everyone else i'd send emails and stuff but he would get printouts and in one of the printouts that i got back uh, across the top he wrote bravara writing with an exclamation point and i was like fucking awesome oh i love that yeah that was the coolest thing i've ever had like i don't know because not only was it like enthusiasm for my writing it was enthusiasm for my writing from someone who's this big in the field you know so anyways uh if you would like to read some bravara writing as uh as said by ed bryant um please check out what lies dreaming available at all sorts of places but also at amazon uh the paper copy is quite a bit more expensive than the ebook copy because you know i don't have a traditional publisher so print on demand is quite a bit more expensive than running 2000 books at once and warehousing them but uh yeah if you really want a paper copy you can get it cool are you comfortable dropping the Price dropping. Oh 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 yeah yeah yeah. Uh, the ebook is nine fifty nine, and then the paper book is like sixteen ninety nine. I think I don't oh. remember just now. I thought you were gonna say sixty ninety nine or something. No no not. So paying another seven Jesus. bucks seven bucks for a paper copy. Yeah, yeah. I think that's that you can way more than standard on your shelf. Yeah, <laughs> I think that I, I I don't buy a lot of books on Amazon, but like 
I think paper copies typically cost about twice as much at least. So I don't think they cost twice as much, but they, yeah. they always cost more. Well, I'm glad I asked because you scared me away by saying like, oh, it's way more expensive. It's another few bucks. You're still getting a paperback book of a uh, given a claim by a renowned author by, for 17 bucks. Yeah. Right. Sounds dope. Okay. All right. Also, the book title is What Lies Dreaming. Yes. We should keep saying that. <laughs> I feel like you keep forgetting to say what the title is. The title is What Lies Dreaming. <laughs> I did make sure that he said it like a minute ago, but okay. you almost got away without saying it. So yeah. yeah. All right. Cool. Okay. Uh, we can touch on everything else and more feedback later because it's late. Yes, the name. Whose turn is it? Jess's. Okay. All right. Um, our patron this time is Marcin Jacquard. I, I don't know if that's how you pronounce it. They always give me the hard ones. <laughs> <laughs> that was why I gestured. <laughs> Marcina, thank you for your support. We appreciate you. And you're the reason that we were able to keep doing what we do. Hell yeah. Thank you, Marcin. Yeah, thank you. Uh, once again, we really appreciate it. And we do have some very vague rewards on our Patreon page. I think a lot of other pr- uh, shows that are maybe put a little more time in production actually like have tiered awesome rewards. But basically if you support the show and you want literally anything within reason, shoot us a message and we'll see if we can make it happen or we can negotiate something. So seriously, uh, Patreon message goes straight to our inbox. We'll, we'll respond as soon as we can. So yeah, and you can comment on uh, our website, thebasingconspiracy.com. You can uh, comment on the in the subreddit, which is where a lot of the uh, feedback happens, at uh, slash r slash conspiracy. I think it's the Bayesian Conspiracy. The Bayesian Conspiracy, okay. And, uh, yeah, thanks for listening. You guys are awesome. Awesome. Have a great night. Bye. Bye.